bits of a gap between each uh, time we do this. Um, maybe I have a quick recap, if you don't mind, as to what's happened in chapters 1 to 3. Uh, it goes back to the year 586 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes into Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem, and takes many of the Jews <coughs> exile back to Babylon, a journey of about 800 miles. Babylon, uh, as an empire, is taken over by the Persian Empire, and they then have obviously responsibility for those Jews in exile. They have a slightly different approach, and they allow the Jews to resettle back in Jerusalem gradually over a period of 100 years. So when they go back, they um, start to rebuild the temple. And then we find Nehemiah comes on the scene. Uh, he is cupbearer to the king. Question for you, what is the king's name? Artaxerxes, right? I'm sure you know, you just didn't want to say. And what was Nehemiah's brother called? Hakaliah. Or Hanani, I think it is. Maybe you've got, because you've got a bigger Bible than me. So it might be that... Well, Hakaliah was his dad, sorry. All right, okay. <laughs> right. So Nehemiah gets message from his brother to say that the situation in Jerusalem is not good. Bear in mind that Nehemiah is in Persia. And uh, his reaction is, first of all, he weeps. He's really concerned because his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are not going through a good time. The walls are still in ruins. The people themselves are devastated. Um, and he starts to pray, and he prays for about four months for the situation in Jerusalem. And then he volunteers to be used by God to go to Jerusalem to help the situation in Jerusalem. We find that in chapter 2 he prays um, for help and he goes to the king, asks the king for help, and the king provides him with letters that will help him to find material to help repair the walls. And he, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he starts to plan the work he's going to do by walking around the walls and examining the damage to see what exactly has happened. All the stones have fallen down. The gates have been burnt, many of them. It's a poor situation. But he does that to assess and plan ahead. And we talked about how prayer and planning go together um, very often. But it's important that when we're praying and planning that if God changes our plan, we change the plan to coincide with God. Um, we mustn't just assume that our plans are always correct. But praying and planning go together. <coughs> And it's also important to find that he involved other people. He wasn't just doing this himself. He got the other people involved. Uh, initially, he didn't tell them what he was doing, but then he told them, and we're told that they, um, it says in chapter 2, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. They did it together. And they trusted God in this work. There was a, a fair degree of understanding that God is in control of what's going on. Then in chapter 3, we find that we have the building of the wall. Um, who built the fish gate? Ah, it's a bit concerning that you're not remembering these things. It was Hassan Nash, right? <laughs> he was the one responsible for repairing the fish gate. 
But you find in the whole of chapter 3, it's just a list of families getting together and people who have not been experienced in trades, in building and whatever, um, are being used by God to build his wall. And they're working together. And it's a tremendous example for us of how we can work together as a fellowship in God's work of building a place. And that place we were thinking last time was to be a place that will glorify God. Yeah, that was true of the, of the wall in Jerusalem. It would be to glorify God. It was a place of security. So the, the city would be protected. And it was a witness to other countries round about of what God was doing. And that's true of us today as well, isn't it? That we should be a place that glorifies God, that we feel secure in. People feel secure when they come in here. But they also, it is a witness to those around us. So that brings us um, close to chapter 4. No one was excluded in this work. And it's important to remember that, that um, no one person could do all the work. Every person could do something. And that's a, a wonderful lesson to learn, is that if we all work together, we can do so much more than one person trying to do everything. And we all have different gifts that have been given to us by God. So we get to chapter 3, I think they've cracked it. Yeah, they've, they've done it. They've gone through this process, they've examined the walls, and they're now building the walls, and God's on their site, and everything is honky-dory, tickety-boo, and they're all fine, right? And then we read the first verse of chapter 4, and it says, When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Can I just say that it can happen in our lives as well, can't it? As a church and as individuals, we can go through a period where everything is tickety-boo. Where does that come from? <laughs> tickety-boo. Don't know. Anyway, but you know what I mean. It's all fine. Everything's going well. People are coming in. We're having good times of fellowship together. We're learning. And then we're reminded quite clearly, when we start working for the Lord, Satan starts working against us. Absolutely sure of that. And that's what's happening here. Satan starts to work against these people. Who is Satan? I mean, we have to recognize that Satan is real. Because it's so easy just to think of this Satan as a, an image of someone with, like a, with a forked tail and whatever. And, um, and we have these images. But just as the Lord Jesus is real and living today, so is Satan. And that is something we need to grasp hold of. That Satan is alive and active. And he is challenging us in the work that we do. He is the enemy. It's a spiritual battle. We can't see him. But he is very active and he's very subtle. Sometimes he's subtle, sometimes he's direct. He works through individuals, he works through situations. There's all sorts of ways that he brings problems into the life of the church. And what I want us to think about tonight is, how do we recognize those problems? And how should we respond to those when they come along? Because Jesus made it quite clear as well when he was talking to the disciples that if you follow me, it's going to be difficult. You're going to be persecuted. It's not an easy life. So we shouldn't go into the Christian life thinking that it's going to be easy. 
We should expect these things to happen. We should expect opposition from Satan, and Satan will come in very different disguises. So what are the problems that we might experience? Well, verses 1 to 3, we've already touched on verse 1. But it says there, And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? To buy the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down a wall of stones. They are being absolutely mocked for what they're doing. Satan, through Sambalat, is mocking them by saying they're feeble. They haven't got the strength to do this task. They haven't got the skills to do it. What is, is it they're trying to do? And he says, even a fox, whatever they build, even a little fox will topple the, the stones that they, they collapse. Remember David and Goliath. And David was mocked in a similar way by Goliath, wasn't he? It says in 1 Samuel, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you flesh of the birds and the wild animals. He totally mocked David because he appeared weak. And that's what's happening here. They're mocking these, these Jews because they appear weak. And that can happen in the church and as an individual. In the church, we can be mocked by having a small number by having small resources, limited resources. And people can say, or they might not say it to our faces, but they imply, well, whatever you do is going to fail. You haven't got the manpower to do these things. And that's a challenge. That's a mocking that takes place. It's a challenge for us as a church. To, when we hear these things, how do we respond to that? Because people will say that. And as an individual, we can be mocked because... Our faith is small. We've become a Christian recently and the peer pressure is intense because it wants us to do different things. And they'll say, well, it's great. I always find it very patronising when people say, I love the fact that you're a Christian, but it's not for me. Right? They say that a lot, don't they? It's, it's okay for you. You just carry on and do it. It's like patronising, patting the head. And it's a mocking way in it, really, isn't it? They're mocking us, saying, well, that's fine for you, but what you believe in is rubbish. And it won't last. Your faith won't last. And people will say these things to us. They'll say them subtly, but they can hurt. And we've got to be aware that these things will happen. That people will say things about our church. We will say things about us as an individual. But then... In verses 7 to 8, we find there's a more direct approach. Where it says, But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. 
The work was proceeding. The gaps were being closed. And Satan realised he had to act more positively, more directly. And it says that these, if you read this, the, the whole of Jerusalem was surrounded by these four groups of people. They had nowhere to go. They were surrounded by them. And it says that they plotted in chapter 6, it talks about them scheming. They were deliberately sitting down and saying, how can we disrupt the work that's going on in Jerusalem? And Satan will attack us very directly at times, at work, in our home, with our families. Organizations that we see who are opposed to the Christian faith. Laws that are passed by governments. Many things happening which are direct conflict to what we believe as Christians. And these are a direct attack on us as individuals and us as a fellowship. Satan is planning. He is making plans. He's very active. Let's not pretend otherwise. These things are not an accident. Satan is planning. And why is he doing it? Because he doesn't want God's work to succeed. He wants it, he wants it to stop. He doesn't want any work that we're doing here for the glory of God to succeed. He doesn't want anything that happens in your life to the glory of God to succeed. He is planning to bring you down. Sounds a bit severe, but it's true. And it's only when we actually recognize that that we can help us to move on. But what's a, a third um, way that the problem they faced was verses 10 and 11. And this is coming from an unusual source in a way. It says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's, no, there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they, before they know how, I'm sorry, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and they will kill us and put an end to the work. This was internal criticism, internal discouragement. And very often, Satan will use people within the church to cause trouble. This was coming from people in Judah. Judah was the place you'd expect to be full of faith and courage with the history of David there. But if you read chapter 6, you'll find that in Judah, what happened was they started to compromise. They started to marry people from the other side. They started to compromise their beliefs. They started to put money high up their priority list. It was great to have money. That was important to them. And the combination of that compromise and that desire for money caused them to lose their faith in God. And they then started to be discouraging and critical within the church, within the, the Jews. And they said to the Jews, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's, no, there's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. There were negative comments creeping in. How important it is for us to capture that and not to allow negative comments to creep in to what we say about one another. Can I ask you, if I say something critical of another person, tell me. I do, I know I do it. But if I do it, tell me. And we need to encourage one another because it's little things like that that can cause a bigger problem because we start to talk by people's backs. I mean, talking about no is okay, because we all talk about no. But you know what I mean. In general, 
we have to not talk about one another. The fourth area of problem is in verse 12. And it talks here about the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. They were full of fear. They were scared because they saw the enemy surrounding them. And fear is contagious. It also paralyzes us. If you ever suffer from fear, you don't fear. You know what it's like. You, you don't. You're frozen. You don't want to do. It stops you doing things that you normally did. Remember the ten spies. That there are twelve spies that went into Canaan, and they were asked to check out the land to see what it was like before they entered the promised land. And the twelve came back, and ten of them said, "Let's just have we." Read what it says. In Numbers it is 13.26. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. So there's often positives. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live at in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb signs the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him, that's the ten of them, said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there with the sense of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. That's fear. That's what happens when God asks us to do something and we're scared because of the opposition we're facing. It causes us to fear. And they caused, in that situation, them to spread that word so they didn't enter the promised land at that time. We can be scared or fearful of a number of things. It can be change. I mean, it's not just change in the church, change in life in general, change in a workplace, change in a family. These things can cause upset. And sometimes we fear that if there's any change, it would, it would cause a problem. Sometimes it can be a fear of challenges when God asks us to do something which is out of our comfort zone and we're scared of it so we don't do it or it's fear of commitment because we think if we commit I'm going to lose my friends I'm going to lose my freedom all sorts of things so we're scared of it it might be fear of failure what will people say of me if I try that and it doesn't work or fear of the opposition as we see in this example here they were scared of the opposition and Satan wants us to be scared. There's been no doubt about that. He wants us to be scared. He wants us to be fearful because it stops us doing the work that God has asked us to do. So how do we respond to these situations? How do we respond? How did Nehemiah respond? And what can we learn from his response that can help us today for ourselves? The first one I'm going to say, and you're going to say, oh, I've heard it before. I want to say prayer. Throughout this 
book, Nehemiah, constantly prays. I've mentioned earlier he spent four months praying about the situation before he approached the king. But what I want to focus on, because sometimes when we're feeling a bit down, when we're feeling a bit low, we don't always find it easy to pray. But I want to think about prayer, not just on that occasion in the morning when we sit down and pray, or we come to church and we pray. But prayer, let me call it on the go. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. In Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 5, not chapter 5, chapter... It's, it's one, it's 517, yes, thank you. Do not quench the spirit, do not, sorry, sorry. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And there are other passages which should encourage us. Paul talks about praying constantly, that we should pray in every situation. When we had our family service, Jim asked the question, who can pray? The answer is everybody. Where can we pray? Only in church. No, anywhere. What can we pray for? Anything. If you spend time with your best friend, my best friend's Pam, we spend time together. We don't say right every Monday or every Tuesday at 3.30 we're going to sit down and we're going to have this conversation, right? I mean, there are times when she does make me sit down and we have that conversation, but generally speaking, we talk when we're in the house, we talk when we're out at the shops, we talk when we're in the car, we talk all the time because we're in each other's company and we share anything. I mean, when I'm in the car on a longer journey, some of the great ideas come into my head and I'll tell her about them. It goes on for about 20 minutes. I'll say, what do you think of that? And Pam, she's asleep. She hasn't listened to a word I've said. And it was a great idea. But God doesn't sleep. The point I'm trying to make is, if we can grasp hold of this concept of prayer, is talking to God wherever we are, in whatever situation we find ourselves. He is with us. It's easy to sort of compare compartmentalize, that's a big word, isn't it? Compartmentalize our lives and say, well, when I do my quiet time, that's my time with God. When I go to church, that's my time with God. When I do this, is, but other times, I know in theory he's there, but I'm not always aware of it. What we need to grasp hold of is, let's become aware of the fact he is with us in every situation. That will help us. It will help us when we speak, to know that he's hearing what we say. It'll help us when we go to places. He knows where we're going because he's with us. And it's so important that when we think of prayer, don't get me wrong, it's, it's very important to have those set times of prayer when we, when we pray to God. But it's also so important to understand that we pray at all times. And we talk to God as we would talk to our friend. So prayer is one of the things that Nehemiah used and we should use.
Then it says in verse 9 and 13, not only did he pray, verse 9, it says, we prayed to our God and posted a guard near night to meet this threat. Verse 13, it says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. Posting a guard, understanding what the problem is. Nehemiah knew where the weak points were. He knew where the gaps were still in the wall. He assessed the situation and he then appointed somebody to be a guard at that place so that when the attack came, they could warn people of the attack and hopefully avoid it. In our fellowship, there will be gaps. There will be parts of what we do which are not quite fully filled and Satan will want to get into that. And we need to appoint guards to protect those areas. There will be people in our fellowship who perhaps need special attention, special time spent with them in learning. There will be all sorts of issues that need to be dealt with. And we need to appoint a guard. But in our own lives, we know the weak areas in our lives. We know the weakness of temptation. We know those friends who are going to drag us away. We know those situations which are not good for us. And we need to post a guard. We need to flag it up and say, that guard is there. And when that situation arises, I'm ready for it. I know what's going to happen. I've been there before. I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen this time. I'm posting a guard. We are vulnerable to bad habits, bad attitudes, bad friends, and we need to be aware of that. Look out for these things. Then in verse 14, it says, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Remember who God is. When we go through difficult times, remember who God is and that he is with us. That's why it's important that we pray all the time to remind ourselves he is with us and remind ourselves of the promises that he has made to us. Again, if we're going through sticky times, sometimes reading the Bible can be quite hard. We read it and we get nothing from it. Let's be honest. Yeah? Or is it only me? We do. We read it and we find it's difficult to follow. Or what is that saying to me? Can I suggest that if you're... I'm not asking you to change your Bible reading habits, but can we add something in? Read a promise each day. There's a list of 365 promises, right, from the Bible. One for each day of the year. Said, I'm sorry, they haven't got one for today. They didn't think about leap years, did they? But you've got one, I know, you've got your own promises. <laughs> but there are promises, and we could just take one of those promises, and they're, they're short. Let me read a couple to you. All my plans will be fulfilled, for I know the end from the beginning. What a wonderful promise to lay hold of. When we go into a difficult situation, we go into a day where we're not sure what's going to happen, so that God knows. God knows the end from the beginning, so we can trust him. I will take hold of your hand to keep you from falling. 
I have blotted out your sin and dissolved them like a mist. When we're feeling guilty, remind ourselves that God has dealt with our sin. He will remember it no more. How important it is to remember who God is and what he has done. And by just reading one of those each day and trying to memorize it, that it becomes part of us and reminds us during that day of the God that we have. In verse 14, it talks about being equipped. No, it doesn't. It's 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. John's been talking about the soldier and the spiritual armor. And last time he spoke, he, he talked about it in Ephesians. He talks about we don't have to go and find the armor. We have the armor. It's a case of putting it on. Putting the armor on because God has provided the armor for us. And that armor is so important when we come to face up to the, the attacks of Satan, the subtle attacks, the, the outright attacks, whatever they might be, that we are ready and protected by that armor. And in verse 23, it says, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when we went for water. They never took off their clothes. They were ready. They were alert because they knew that at any time Satan could attack. And Satan can attack us at any time. And we need to be alert. If you take that picture perhaps, it would mean that we don't take the armour off at night. We keep the armour on at all times because we don't know when he will attack. The one piece of armour that is particularly picked out in this is verse 18. It talks about, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded a trumpet stayed with me. The sword was vitally important. The sword speaks of the word of God. And they were standing together. Although they, it tells us they were separated by distance because of the work they were doing on the wall. In verse 20 it says, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, our God will fight for us. The trumpet was used to warn people, to let them know that something was happening. So they didn't feel alone, they didn't feel separated. They felt part of a group of people. God was with them, fighting for them. And that should be true of us, isn't it? That we are equipped individually to stand against Satan. But as a group, we have each other's back. We'll look it out for one another because we love one another and we want to protect one another. And there are times when someone of fellowship, we go through that difficult time, and we all do. And that's the time we should look out for them, encourage them, protect them, and remind them of God. And finally, it's mentioned three times, and I think this is really important. Verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, so it almost reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And in verse 15 it says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of the plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. And in verse 21 it says, So we continued to work with half the men holding spears. Throughout this whole chapter, throughout this whole episode of the army surrounding them, giving them a hard time, they kept working. 
One of the easiest things to do when we go through difficult times is to stop working for God. Say, well, I'm not worthy because the attacks have got to us or I'm frozen with fear, whatever it might be. But constantly throughout this chapter, we're reminded that we need to keep working. And that's where it's important that one another work together to support those who are perhaps going through a difficult time. And it has that beautiful picture of the sword and the trowel. Many of you will be aware of Spurgeon's magazine that he produced called The Sword and the Trowel. And he took it from this chapter where he's saying you've got a real balance here between the sword to attack the enemy or defend yourself against the enemy and the trowel to carry on working. Keep working. Keep doing what God has asked us to do. Alan Redpath was a preacher from Edinburgh. Um, and he said we should be a people with a mind to work a heart to pray, an eye to watch, and an ear to hear. In the 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know it is not in vain. Let's pray. Our dear God and Father, we thank you for the words that you have in scripture we thank you for the words that can challenge us and encourage us and help us and we just pray that what we've read tonight and the examples